This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, ratified on December 6, 1865, formally outlawed slavery in the United States and its territories, except in punishment for crime. However, it wasn't until 99 years later, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson on July 2nd of that year, that discrimination in hiring on the basis of race was outlawed in private employment. After the Civil War, while Black people in the United States were no longer enslaved, They were often limited in the employment they could find and could be subject to terrible working conditions and poor pay. Ironically, because they were concentrated in certain jobs, black workers sometimes monopolized those jobs and had collective power to demand better conditions and higher pay. I'm going to zoom in now on one such instance, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and then zoom back out to the larger story of the Black working class in my conversation with today's guest. In 1862, George Mortimer Pullman founded the Pullman Company to manufacture luxury railroad cars with sleeping berths that included drapes, carpeting, along with Pullman's signature customer service. At its peak, 26 million people a year rode in Pullman cars. By 1884, Pullman had created a town for his growing workforce on 4,000 acres between Lake Calumet and the Illinois Central Rail Line south of Chicago. In response to the Economic Depression of 1893, Pullman cut wages 25% but kept rent high in the company town, leading the workers to strike. After a federal injunction, President Grover Cleveland sent in federal troops, leading to violence, and eventually the strike ended, with Pullman rehiring the workers, as long as they signed a pledge never to join a union. The factory workers weren't the only employees that Pullman mistreated. In order to provide the famed customer service on Pullman cars, each time a railroad leased a Pullman car, a porter came with it. For this role, which included such tasks as setting up the sleeping berths, loading baggage, and serving passengers, Pullman hired only black men, often from the South. With his stated expectation that formerly enslaved men would know how to be good, invisible servants, and would be willing to work for low pay. 
despite the poor pay that Pullman provided. Many black men eagerly accepted the work, unable to find employment elsewhere. At one point in the early 20th century, Pullman was the largest single employer of black men in the United States, with 12,000 porters. The wages that Pullman porters earned, which in 1926 averaged about $810 a year, or $14,000 a year in today's dollars, were envied by others in the black community. But they didn't come close to making up for the 400 hours per month that Pullman porters were expected to work, nor the treatment by passengers, who called them boy or George. In the early 20th century, most Pullman workers were represented by the American Railway Union. But the union refused to include black workers, including the porters. On August 25, 1925, the porters formed their own union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, led by A. Philip Randolph, a labor organizer and publisher of The Messenger, an independent magazine that had ties in its founding to the Socialist Party. Because Randolph himself was not a porter, he didn't risk being fired by Pullman. The Brotherhood worked to enroll Pullman porters into the Union, but the Pullman Company refused to recognize the Union, and responded to the Union's efforts by firing Union members and threatening to fire others who might join. In September 1927, the Brotherhood attempted to secure a federal investigation into their conditions, filing a case with the Interstate Commerce Commission, but the ICC ruled that it didn't have jurisdiction in the matter. By 1928, it seemed that threatening a strike may be the only way to gain recognition. But even then, the National Mediation Board, established by the Watson-Parker Railway Labor Act of 1926, refused to act on behalf of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Having been convinced by the Pullman Company that the union couldn't actually pull off a strike that would threaten the sleeping car service, the Brotherhood backed down from their planned walkout once they were faced with the threat of replacement workers. After Franklin D. Roosevelt became president, though, the Railway Labor Act was amended in 1934, and porters were granted new rights, which encouraged more porters to join the Brotherhood. In 1935, the Pullman Company finally agreed to recognize the Union, and the Brotherhood was also granted a charter to the American Federation of Labor, AFL, making the Brotherhood the first black union it accepted. In 1937, the Pullman Company signed a contract with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, giving the porters raises, a shorter work week, and overtime pay. A. Philip Randolph wasn't done fighting for black workers, though. In 1941, he organized the porters along with the NAACP 
and the Union League, and said that he would bring 100,000 black people to march on Washington if President Roosevelt didn't end racial discrimination in employment in the defense industries. Despite his initial reluctance, Roosevelt relented, signing Executive Order 8802 into law on June 25, 1941. On August 28, 1963, Randolph did lead a march in Washington, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, with 250,000 participants. Although Martin Luther King's speech is the best known from that day, Randolph's speech preceded his, where he said, quote, Let the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob. We are the advanced guard of a massive moral revolution for jobs and freedom. Unquote. Joining me now to help us learn about the Black working class is historian Dr. Blair L. M. Kelly, the Joel R. Williamson Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the incoming director of the Center for the Study of the American South, and author of Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. I feel all so blue I really don't know what to do I've got a brand new job A tip collector It's some job A cop protector Since I left my home And started on railroads to Rome I get nothing but abuse so tell me what's the use? It's full my toda, draft on my feet, it's full my toda, tied on the heat, it's full my toda, all the live long days, it's full my toda, bring me water, that is all that it says, it's full my toda, make up my vibes, it's full my toda, no Hi, Blair. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, really love this book, so I'm excited to speak with you about it. I want to hear a little bit about your inspiration in writing it. Well, I mean, it's interesting. They approached me about the possibility of writing about the Black working class. And at first I was like, well, that's not exactly what I do. I'm a historian of the African-American experience in general. I'm a historian of movements. And I was intimidated because oftentimes labor histories really have a different kind of tone than I write with. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, this might not be the right fit. And so they said to me, my editor and, and my agent, you know, let's just start proposing? What would you write if you could write your own history of the Black working class? And so I started crafting a proposal that really started with my family and the stories that my mother told me, that my father told me, that my grandparents shared with me when I was growing up. And 
those stories gave me that framework. And then I tapped into the um, the kinds of jobs that I teach about when I teach about African-American history and the jobs that I felt were really transformative in terms of establishing the character of the Black working class over time. And so I came up with a set of things that I think look different than the standard labor history, but really reflect what I was interested in and what I really felt were the roots of the Black working class in history. Could you talk a little bit about the title? You you talk about this a little bit at the beginning of your book, and I I wonder if you could talk about it, because I'm sure, as you mentioned in the book, people will hear Black folk and might think about W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, but that's not what you're referencing here. So why did you title it Black Folk? So for me, that was another interesting moment. Um, I was finished the book and uh, my editor was like, well, when are we going to address the elephant in the room? And I'm like, what is that? What elephant are we talking about? And he said, well, you know that you are inspired by Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, and that's why you titled the book that way. And I was like, ooh, no, (laughs) that's not at all what I was thinking. And so for me, um, when Black people talk about each other and the sort of the everyday version of us, it's Black folk. You know, Black folk show up in a certain kind of lexicon that I wanted that comfort, that familiarity. Uh, that that everyday experience to be reflected. And so for me, Black folk is just the way we refer to each other. It, it's how I think of myself. It's how I think of my ancestors. And so Du Bois, you know, came to writing Souls of Black Folk, I think, in a, a bit more of an anthropological kind of lens. And, and I strive not to have that in this work, really more a, a, a way of knowing um, grounded in my own experiences. So you you mentioned that you come to this from you know thinking about your your family and the stories that you heard, and so you tell the stories of some of your family members, uh, but you also tell stories of other individuals in this book, not just your family members. Yes, and that's not all you do, of course. That you know, there's also a, a little more of the sort of traditional labor history. But can you talk a little bit about how, why you structure the book in that way and why you're telling stories of individuals? So I'm an oral historian. It's really the first work I, I did as a historian. I was part of a project called Behind the Veil at Duke University in graduate school. And I went out into the field and did interviews. And so I did that before I even took a history class of any sort in grad school. And so it's very formative to how I think and how I want the voices of the past to, to really tell us what those experiences were like. And I think oral history is such a rich opportunity to fill in those gaps. And so I not only use my own family stories, as you said, but I use um, I use a oral history from Behind the Veil. I use some other ones that I found uh, that were really amazing with um, particular folks who I thought move the story forward and, and narrated into the spaces that sometimes we don't know um, from just looking at traditional archival records or union records. And they really provided a richness of tone and outlook and the detail about everyday experience that I I wanted to add in. And so I wanted to write them um, just like they were uh, my family members. And so I tried to provide that same kind of rich texture. I, I made family trees for everybody. I have 26 family trees in my ancestry account. And 
you know, it's much harder to make a family tree for somebody who you don't know that well, but some of them are, are really good trees. And um, I provide, I shared those trees with uh, some of the family members of the people who I'm using uh, as, as my subjects in Black folks. So um, it, I really want that sort of personal ancestral information to be another way of knowing on top of the archival. So one of the uh, sources of oral history that people are probably aware of is the uh, Works Progress Administration. And so one of the the sources you use, this uh, washerwoman, Sarah, is interviewed. But you point out, in addition to the interesting things that you can get from that interview, that uh, that it's really shaped by the interviewer, by this woman, this white woman who is who is coming down. Could you talk a little bit about that? And, uh, you know, and especially with your work in oral history, how the the historian who's asking the questions shapes the the stories that we hear. Yeah. I, when I teach uh, oral history, I always teach the WPA interviews just for precisely this reason, that uh, the WPA interviews were a power imbalance oftentimes in the, in the midst of segregation in um, Southern cities and Southern rural places. White interviewers are coming to Black people's houses which is a non-traditional kind of thing. And so when they enter, they have a lot of clout over them. And so the the interviewers don't feel at all like they need to pull back or uh, provide any sort of space for their Black interviewees. And interviewees don't have much power to do anything but go along or at least appear to go along with those interviews. And so I could see that tension in the text of the interview that I use with Sarah Hill um, and the things that she was leaving out and or not really diving into that I could see in the her census record, um, the loss of a son, for example, that she doesn't mentioned. And and I could see her discomfort, you know, her physical discomfort and, you know, trying to make sure that this this white stranger is cared for in her yard. So I wanted to write through their perspectives. I wanted to think through uh, what washerwoman meant both to a white observer and to a person experiencing it as a field and and the empowerment that she got from it in terms of her own life. And so it was a a fun kind of exercise to write through, you know, as I was working on it, people were like, well, why are you doing this? (laughs) For me, it was, it was important to not only say that there's a power imbalance, but to really explore it a bit. I want to use the the story of the washerwomen to talk about skilled labor and quote unquote unskilled labor. Uh, so we're speaking just a few days after this new Florida guidelines or something about like how they're going to teach about black history and, okay. uh, and this terrible idea that, you know, we should be saying that enslaved people gained skills in their enslavement. And yet those same people after emancipation were told, you have no skills, you can only do unskilled labor. So can you talk a little bit about the ways, you know, the the washerwomen are a great example that that this labor is highly skilled. It's it's not at all unskilled, but yet it's being treated as and paid as unskilled, quote unquote, unskilled labor. Yeah, I, I, the dynamic that I, you know, stands out for me between the, the unskilled and the skilled as I was working on this, you know, that's the traditional sort of historical framework that we put on labor categories. And so, you know, there's skilled slaves and unskilled slaves. You know, that's how I was taught. 
And as I was working on this, I was like, wait, these these women made their own soap. They built their own wash pots and, you know, refuge fire. Like, you know, they're doing all the kinds of things that we think are valuable now. Right. You know, this is like artisan soap and (laughs) and, you know, recycling other kinds of materials for reuse. They're making their own starch. They're making their own materials to raise stains from organic things. Whoa, I, if you left me with a, you know, a pile of organic materials and said, now wash your clothes, I would be in a bad, bad way because those things weren't passed down to me. And so for me, I, that's when I was like, OK, this is skilled work to really know how to do this successfully. I remember my mother talking about, you know, seeing her aunt do laundry and, you know, that it was an iron. That The reason that we call it an iron is because it was a piece of iron where you'd have to wrap some kind of rag around the the handle to make it tolerable enough for you to not burn your hand, but hot enough that you could smooth clothes pre-polyester. And it it was just, you know, really powerful to me to think about, well, all labor has some set of skills built into it. I was watching on Twitter, my, my at the time fave, and um, the the farm workers union were, were creating these beautiful reels of farm workers harvesting different kinds of foods. Um, and the one that stood out to me the most were, were radishes. And they were cutting the radish and pulling them out of the ground, cutting them and bundling them in like a motion. And the little bundle that we buy in the supermarket was like perfectly made after a few seconds of, under this man's directive and care. And I was like, well, that's unskilled labor. You know, if we if we go back to, you know, historians and sociologists and labor economists, that's unskilled labor. But the rest of us would probably, you know, cut ourselves in the attempt to do it. And it would not be perfectly bound and the right size and so quick. And so it was just a reminder to me to slow down and think about the labor that people did the knowledge they brought to it, the skill, the professionalism, and to really describe it and sit with it and honor it. So this leads also then to really a labor movement, to to solidarity uh, among Mm -hmm. workers. And so I I thought it was so interesting several times in the washerwomen, in the domestic help, in the Pullman porters, that, that you see that these people are forced into this kind of work because of segregation of the labor market, that they have no real other choices. But because they are forced into that and they are the only ones doing this work, they have a certain power because they have a monopoly on that kind of labor. So could you talk a little bit about that that dynamic and the way that the, the, the people you're talking about who are who are not necessarily the people we think of when we think about like labor unions and labor movements, um, but are such an integral part of the history of labor movements in this country. Absolutely. So for me, you know, both the washerwomen and the Pullman porters are just and the postal workers that I write about are such tremendous examples of the power that black workers can have to wedge their circumstances against their desired goals. And a reminder that, you know, oftentimes we were taught that labor organizers must come and raise the consciousness of workers and help them understand their positionality and then, you know, organize them into unions. 
And here you see people who are emancipated. You know, the washerwomen begin to organize the first union in 1865 in Jackson, Mississippi. They were enslaved and then they were free and they understood, hey, we have a monopoly on this work. This work is stigmatized. White women will never really want to do this in mass. And if you want us to do it, we're going to do it the way we want to do it. We're going to do it at our own homes. We're going to watch our own children as enslaved women. We could not. We're going to demand a living wage. And we're going to make sure that we're all doing this collectively. And so they didn't need their consciousness raised. Their consciousness was built in enslavement. The Pullman porters understood that if George Mortimer Pullman created an all-Black male labor force in most of the country, boy, they, they had each other. And they could build on that community solidarity. And they could use the rails to advance uh, the cause of African-Americans in general. And they could use it to build a union that was tremendously strong and the most important union in probably African-American history that leads to directly to the civil rights movement. So there's just such a tremendous body of knowledge in these communities of workers that was impressive. So I want to talk a little bit about the South. So the South is kind of this other character <laughs> in your is book. It? Okay, cool. <laughs> Well, you know, so a lot of these families start in the South and then move North, but they never forget that they're from the South. Your family never forgets the roots in the South and, you know, literal roots, right? Because we're talking about sometimes about like food that they're growing, sweet potatoes and things. Yeah. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that, maybe just from your own family's perspective of the the importance of, of remembering where you come from in the South, you know, even I, I think you were born in the North yourself, but you know, you, you still remembered that, you know, the, the family ties to the South uh, and, and then you returned to the South. So can you talk a little bit about that? I, I think it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, when we teach the migration, oftentimes we're teaching like people had to evacuate the South, they had to leave, you know, very quickly. And they do, you know, my family absolutely you know, has to flee. And the choices that they had where they were, were, were very slim. And it really was about survival and leaving. But in leaving, they didn't become different people. The, the things that they valued, their sense of land and, as you said, food and culture and faith were all grounded in the experiences they had as Southern people. And so as much as, you know, they're living in Philadelphia in, in our case, you know, they, they're very... You know, my grandfather was from Georgia. Like you, if you heard him and saw him, you didn't really think much about Philadelphia. You really thought about Georgia. And my grandmother was from South Carolina. And she, you know, she said, oh, you're a Geechee girl. You, when I make this rice, you, you love it so much. And so she wanted me to, to, to be connected to the place where she was born. And, you know, they, they wanted me to understand it and wanted me to, to eat like it and think like it and, and to honor it and respect it and not to be ashamed of where we were from. And so it's it's a big part of who I am as a person. So I've, you know, been in North Carolina a really long time, most of my adult life. And, you know, North Carolinians are never going to consider you to be from here unless you were born, like, in their neighborhood. Like, they know if all the people that you know. <laughs> so I don't know that I can become a Southerner again, but I certainly am a kind of Southerner. 
and I'm part of a, an interesting Black Southern diaspora that um, is returning back. And so it, it, it is really profound the degree to which my upbringing is a reflection of, of all the communities where they were from. I want to ask while we're talking about your family about, you know, you talked about the stories and the the things that you heard about the things that they didn't talk about, you know, so mm-hmm. you, you talk about your, uh, I think it's your grandmother who, mm-hmm. who worked for 10 years as a, a maid, but that wasn't something she talked about and about all of the the loss that they suffered. And, and those were things that, that they were not necessarily sharing with you. Can you talk a little bit about that, the the sort of the pieces that are missing in those family stories and the the things that, you know, you, you learned along the way, or maybe you learned some of in, in actually doing this research? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, my grandmother was very proud of her work uh, at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. In the first generation, when she first migrated, she couldn't get a job there. They weren't hiring Black women. And she had a high school education. She you know, was ready to do that work. And she had to be a living household laborer and to be away from my mother for most of the week and to have another woman raise my mom when she was really little because she wasn't yet school age. And so it was a profound loss for her, a, a shame for her. My mother, I tell the story in the book about my mother having to board a streetcar and ride from where her mother worked back to her neighborhood by herself before she could read and see the street signs. And my mother told me that story a long time ago, well before she told me that my grandmother was a maid. And so when I started to click it all together, it it became even more poignant that it wasn't just that my grandmother just had some weird thing going on. She literally wasn't allowed to to take her own daughter home. And so it it just, you know, those poignant moments that I did get to finally talk to my mom about before she passed away were really something else. But there were there are other things that I discovered in doing census research that my grandmother had a sister and a brother-in-law and a niece and nephew who passed away from tuberculosis that I never knew any of that. I don't even know who in my family may have known about the existence of this whole other sibling. And so it's just very powerful, the the suffering that that generation experienced and yet was there to give the sustenance to me as best they could uh, in spite of what they lost and what they suffered. You just mentioned the sister and brother-in-law and their children, and they died of tuberculosis. And yes. You know, it it's striking how how for the the black working class there is this this intersectionality, right? Of of not just poor working class conditions, but then also marginalized communities, often with terrible conditions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that that has not stopped, right? Despite the fact that healthcare in this country has has gotten better and all of those, it's still disproportionately working class black people who are affected by things like COVID-19. So can can you talk a little bit about that and that piece of what we should be thinking about when we're thinking about the black working class? Absolutely. It was really poignant for me because you know I was writing this in the in the midst of COVID and you know not even fully having a, a tight grasp on exactly what it meant as I was you know working on this research. But the echoes that I began to see with 
the, the history of a black working class that suffered from higher levels of disease, live in more exposed areas for um, carcinogens in the air and the water and in the soil, who always are disproportionately suffering from, you know, a health gap that is intergenerational at this point. And, and COVID just brought that home again. It, it, it was really profound to, to make sure that I thought about those, those consequences and those real life burdens that the working poor have carried and continue to carry. Um, particularly as, you know, we all were like, oh, we have to you know, stay home, stay safe. And there were so many of uh, my brothers and sisters in community with me who were like, I, I was never home. I was, I was always essential and I was always at the hospital or at the supermarket or delivering the mail. And so that really sort of ethic of care that had to come into play for them. They had to take care of each other and figure things out on their own. Um, before we had good answers and they had to find ways to try and survive. And we know that, you know, there was a disproportionate toll uh, that COVID took on the black working class and working class people in general in this time period. So it was, it was really an important lesson that was echoing in our, our present moment that I had to, to bring to bear in this story. Yeah. So actually, I want to follow up on that that ethic of care, because I think one of the things that you talk about so powerfully in this book is the the communal nature, the the communities around the the Black working class. And, you know, you talked about it when you were talking about like Black folk and the, the way that you titled the book. But I think that's so important to then understanding things like the labor movement that comes out of this and then the civil rights movement that that comes out of that. So could you talk a little bit about that, that community, that communal spirit that uh, really connects all of the stories in this book? Yeah, I, I started Black Folk with enslavement and with the uh, forebearer of my grandfather's, Henry, who was the farthest back person I could find on his family line. and. It's unusual to talk about slavery in a sort of working class history because it's, you know, not good Marxian theory, right? <laughs> I shouldn't be talking about enslaved people. But for me, what was important there was to talk about the roots of that community and that the ethic of care that I see in the 20th century is grounded in the survival of the enslaved, that they have to remake community, remake family. To redefine kin, redefine how they will take care for each other and look out for one another. And that the, the folks who come out of enslavement build a different kind of vision of the world and that their American vision is fundamentally not um, survival of the fittest, the individual bootstrap lifting person, but really how do we do this together and how do we survive together and how do we tell each other the best way to go forward? And that comes from enslavement and it's carry forward. It is the inheritance of uh, the future generations from the enslaved. They don't have much given to them at the end of enslavement, but they do have that sense of who they are and how they have to care for one another. And so for me, that was a, a powerful thing to see that, you know, the Pullman porters aren't organizing by themselves. There's men and women who are not Pullman porters who are 
organizing, giving funds, providing support, cheering them on in every way, shape, and form. And when the Pullman Porters get recognition in 1937, federal recognition for the first time, they turn right back around and they demand that the desegregation of uh, defense jobs from the federal government, that had nothing to do with them as a union, but it's that sense that the broader fight is everybody's fight. And that was what was so powerful for me to see again and again and again. I I really appreciated how much you drew out the stories of Black women in this too. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's it's easy to think of working class and think of, you know, white, like that's what we're told by media over and over again right now. And then it's very easy to think of labor history and, and think of men and men's stories. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that, your choices to, to really in, include and highlight Black women's stories in this book? I think, you know, they're underwritten. There's whole histories of the Black working class where you can look for the term laundress or washerwoman. You can look for the word maid or household worker, and they really won't be there in the index. So I, I found that to be horrifying because if we want to understand the processes by which this whole community is able to survive migration, is able to move these movements forward over time, women are essential to it. We, black women are, you know, the, the prototype of women workers in the United States. And they really do deserve study and deserve extended attention. And when you study them, you know, I discovered things that I don't think I learned anywhere else. I I had no idea that the number of Black women in household employment actually increases in the beginning of the 20th century. You know, you would think it would be quite high in the 19th century, but no, it, it shoots up. And it shoots up around the time that uh, of the Second World War when white women are asked to go into factories and do factory work because their, their men are abroad. And Black women go into white households at that time to watch the children of the women who are called into defense employment. They pay much better than the jobs that they are taking, um, jobs that were not open to them for the most part. And so, um, you know, it was powerful for me to think, oh, well, Rosie the Riveter, our, you know, our icon of white women working has a Black maid and is, you know, undergirded by Black women's labor. And it was powerful for me to think about the ways in which Black women's migration really does fuel all of these other movements that we were talking about and thinking about. That washerwomen are so strategic and brilliant is something I've known for a really long time, in part because of the amazing work of Tara Hunter and her book, To Joy My Freedom, which I just adore. But that the model that she outlines of what happens in Atlanta in 1881 is replicated on a smaller scale all over the entire South in parts of the country all over. That washerwomen are so organized and so determined and really do change the shape of what's possible uh, within segregated communities. And with, with limited pay and limited opportunity, they, they make a whole world for themselves. And so it was really powerful to to have women's um, history be those opening doors of, of new lessons for just how profound their impact was. 
Well, everyone should go read this book. And one of my personal heroes shows up several times, Ida B. Wells Barnett. Oh, so. come on now. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even have time to go into her. So tell everyone how they can get a copy of the book. Well, the book is everywhere. If you you know go buy it from your local bookseller, because I love to support our local booksellers. I think they're essential. But you can order it online as well or any store, any big box store, wherever. That's my book. It's out there. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about? No, I think this was a really great conversation and I really appreciated the chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. I, I love the book and I really enjoyed speaking with you. I love when people read it. it. It feels good. You work on it for so long by yourself and you just don't know how it's going to go over. So it's just wonderful to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye! MSW.